I would like to talk about the resurrection, which is a part of the spring holy days. And the title that I have for the message this afternoon is Mary Magdalene, the first to witness Jesus' resurrection. Go with me to Mark 16. Mark 16, verse 9. And Mark, as usual, is very uh, straightforward, gets right to the point. He says this, When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. So very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they went on their way to the tomb. That would have been last Sunday. Now as a human being, this, this Mary, Mary Magdalene, was nobody special. Really not a special person at all. But she's mentioned in a very special way here. What makes her special is Jesus' appearance to her. And in the same way, none of us are special. None of you guys are really anything special. I'm not anything special. This is not a gathering of the beautiful. It's not a gathering of the rich. It's not a gathering of the elite. That is not the nature of God's church. What makes you significant, however, because you are significant, what makes you significant and noteworthy is that you have been brought into the body of the resurrected and living Christ. When people talk about Mary, they try and spice it up a lot. You might have heard some of this over the years, and this, maybe you haven't, but people try and spice up the record that we have in the gospel by imagining that Mary is, um, she's an alluring, reformed prostitute who either seduced or at least tempted Jesus. And that is the result of just guesswork, you know, trying to put this together with that and saying, what about this? And it, you know, it, it's definitely spicier and makes you, oh boy, what about this? Ooh, that would have been, ooh, that would have been a challenge, wouldn't it? It's speculation and at some points it's even blasphemy, which the scriptural record does not say anything about. What we know is very little. We know few details about this woman. But people have taken what I would call like an empty glass, an empty jar, and filled it with all kinds of ridiculous fables and stories and speculations. Now Mary actually, uh, she's captured a lot of people's imaginations over the, uh, over the millennium. She appears in some obviously fake writings from the second and third century, you know, hundreds of years after Jesus, the time of Jesus. And, uh, you know, these writings, they resurface every few centuries or so, and you'll hear people say, new truth found, new gospel found, the gospel of, you know, Ralph. And they, it's all stuff that's been talked about, it's been uh, speculated about, and, you know, basically dismissed as, as foolishness many times. But they do capture the imagination of, of people. Basically, they capture the imagination of people who want to get into what I'm going to call secret knowledge, who want to promote alternative agendas. Why were these books suppressed? Why were they not put in the Bible? What's going on here? You know, we really have a, we have a real interest in conspiracy theories these days. And so the, uh, these crazy writings about Mary really play into the spirit of the age, if you will. In these, I don't want to dwell too much on these, these writings. But Mary is sometimes depicted in these writings as the actual real spiritual teacher among the apostles. Yes, she was the real spiritual teacher who, who actually is put forward as presenting Jesus' true teaching, you know, which she received from revelations that she got 
remember this is all phony stuff from two or three hundred years later, but she's basically giving the you know the Gnostic viewpoint, which is the true spirituality is about getting in touch with your in inner spiritual self. You know, and then you get closer to God by realizing, you know, and getting in contact with that the pureness of your immortal soul within and that sort of thing. And and these teachings really when you boil them down, are more like Greek philosophy or what we would get in Buddhism or something like that than anything, anything that Jesus has actually recorded as having said in the Gospels. These fictional depictions of Mary also present her as a woman in conflict with the male authority figures within the church, which people uh, in our age really have latched onto and said, aha, look, see, we're being oppressed. What I would draw your attention to is that people who buy into one idea, you know, like the whole idea of getting in touch with your inner spiritual self, tend to buy into the other idea. They go together like, you know, peas and carrots, as Forrest Gump would say, peas and carrots. But contrary to what has been devised by the human imagination, Mary Magdalene was not destined to be one of the great leaders of the church. She just wasn't. And the Bible makes no further mention of her after the record of the resurrection. That's it. The trail runs dry right there. And yet, and yet, Jesus appeared to her first among all the people that he knew. And I believe that God does everything for a purpose and has a purpose for everything. So let's spend some energy thinking about this woman, Mary Magdalene. So what do we know? What do we know? Go to Luke 8. What do we know about her? We know some things that are important and meaningful, which we don't need to add to, but we do. People have. In Luke 8, verses 1 through 3, regarding her background and where she's coming from and so forth, it says this. After this, Jesus traveled about. So this would be you know, during the days of his active ministry. He's traveling around Galilee and so forth. Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household, an important woman, and Susanna, and many others. And these women were helping to support them out of their own means. Now, Anything else, anything outside of this about Mary's background has absolutely no documentation whatsoever. That is all we know about her background. So the last name, Magdalene. Well, that simply indicates that she was from a small fishing village called Magdala, which is about five miles north on the coast of the Sea of Galilee from Capernaum, where Peter lived, his hometown. So she was about five miles to the north, not very far away, maybe the you know, distance between here and Thomasville or something like that, not, not far. But you know, when you're traveling everywhere by foot, that, that can be quite a trip, right? Jesus' ministry was in this area, so she was there in the area where Jesus was, was ministering. And she came from this town, Magdala. We also know that Mary was one of several women who traveled with Jesus and the disciples, and she contributed financially to his ministry from some money that she had. It seems like they were very important to Jesus' ministry in this way. They contributed out of the money that they had. We also know that formerly she had been tormented and in bondage to seven 
demons, whom Jesus drove out of her. Now those details are enough to tell us what we need to know, which is that she had every reason to love Jesus and to appreciate very much what he had done for her personally. And her sorrow when he died, and then the way she felt when she saw him resurrected was very deep and would have been very personal. Let's talk about Mary's dark past. Because Mary did have a dark past, but not the way people imagine it, and it is in imagination. Mary did have a dark past, but there's no evidence of any kind of sexual immorality or lewdness in her behavior at all. The darkness in her life was from demonic activity. And the Bible does not delve into all the lurid details of what that involved. The emphasis is on the simple fact that she was delivered from this form of bondage by the intervention of Jesus himself, who she would have seen and looked in the eye. Now, part of my purpose is to talk about Mary and explore what do we know about her. So I'd like to just put in a little bit of a, let's call it a sidebar. Let's talk about demonic activity and look at some of the features of demonic activity. I mean, if this woman is known for very little, but one of the things that she's known for is having seven demons cast out of her, it's worth a bit of our time. Go to Matthew 8, verse 28. So what are some of the features of demonic activity? This is not meant to be um, covering all the bases on, on demon activity. This is just to kind of give us a glimpse into this woman, Mary. Uh, Matthew 8, verse 28 and 29. This is another occasion of a person who is demon-possessed and who comes up and sees Jesus face to face, eye to eye. When he, that's Jesus, arrived at the other side, and that'd be the, the other side of the lake there. They call it the Sea of Galilee, but it's really a big lake. When he arrived at the other side of the region in the uh, Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him, and they were so violent that no one could even pass that way. What do you want with us, son of God, they shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? So demonic activity, I put it to you, one of the features of demonic activity is anger. Anger or violent outbursts and perhaps even violence and anger that is directed towards things that represent the goodness of God. And that's just based on some other things that I've seen in my life, but uh, anger and violent outbursts. Mark describes this a little differently. Let's take a look at Mark 5, uh, verses 1 through 5. It's a similar, but apparently somewhat, uh, not the same incident, but similar, very similar. Mark 5, verses 1 through 5 says, they went across the lake to the region of the Gerizines, okay? So this isn't actually far from the Capernaum and Magdala. It's really pretty close if you look at it on a map. And when Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit, it's a demon, came from the tombs to meet him. And this man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. And night and day, among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. So another aspect of demonic activity, which is you know, something that we can see with our eyes, is self-harm and mutilation, inflicting harm upon your own body. Um, I would think that, I mean, I, this is speculation, but you know, there's a lot of turmoil going on if there's demonic activity, especially if the person's resisting it. But it could just be a self-loathing that is, is brought about by 
combination of you know spiritual sin, the presence of the demon, and so forth. But these are the features that we see here in this incident. Self-harm and mutilation. Let's go to one more. One more. Go to Matthew 15, verse 22. It's not meant, I'm not trying to give a whole sermon on you know, demons and stuff like that, but this is to talk about what, what was going on with Mary. What was she delivered from? Matthew 15, verse 22 says this, uh, okay, a Canaanite woman, Jesus had, had been up there in Tyre and Sidon, which is up near in Lebanon, where Lebanon is now, north of the Jewish territory. And a Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out loud, saying, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is a demon-possessed child and suffering terribly. So there, more generally, demonic activity brings about a tremendous amount of suffering. Demon possession can cause physical infirmities. It can bring about fits, seizures, and we see examples of that in scripture as well, blindness. But with that said, it's very important that I make this little cautionary caveat. Even though we see this in scripture, that does not mean that we therefore assume that all physical ailments are the result of demons. The Bible is very clear, and it makes a clear distinction, that some ailments are simply the result of physiology or biology. And it is important to recognize, though, that some of these afflictions are caused by spiritual oppression. Okay, so they can be. It doesn't mean that therefore anyone who has any kind of sickness like this is possessed by a demon. But someone who's possessed by a demon can be afflicted in some of these ways. Now, oppression from an evil spirit can come about, I, I believe, in a variety of different ways. It can come about through choices that we make when we open the door for demons to walk through. You open a door, you open the door to your house, you're basically welcoming things in. And some of those choices that are at play that I think are particularly opening doors for demonic activity are choices that are made in sexual behavior. I think that is an open door for demonism. Substance abuse is a big one. Drugs, alcohol, that can open the door for demonic activity. Choices that we make in entertainment can also open up the door for demonic activity within us. It could even be the company that we keep. You, if you hang around with people who are dabbling in demonic activity, it can get into you. In the same way, if you hang around with someone who's got a cold, you might catch a cold. So the people that you hang around with can be problematic as well. Oppression from evil spirits can also inflict people simply by doing nothing. <laughs> and it's amazing how that works. Oppression from evil spirits can infect people simply by living in what I'm going to call non-biblical or you know, anti-biblical or even an occult-oriented setting or society. You know, if you were in, a, in an environment like that, you might just sort of drink it in and become part of it without even knowing. Please notice you know, the dramatic examples of casting out demons that I mentioned here they take place when Jesus was venturing out beyond Israel and into pagan areas. Areas that really had institutionalized demon worship through their idolatry and you know, the, the pagan gods that they worshipped. That's an open door to demons. And there, there was a lot of demonic activity and, de and a lot of demons that were cast out by Jesus because there was a lot of this stuff going on. The point though, getting back to Mary, the point is this. We don't know how she got into this situation, but she was a woman who was tormented and who was suffering horribly. And she was in the clutches of a willful, evil spirit being. Not just, you know, the force. This was a willful spirit being who was doing her harm. 
And that's what demons are, beings that choose evil over good, and their desire is to uh, infect human beings, and they cause problems. People possessed by demons are described in scripture as miserable, as sorrowful, lonely, outcasts, victims whose lives have been ruined. And one way or the, other, or the other, Mary became such a person. Mary Magdalene became such a person who was tormented and who suffered horribly. And she was in the clutches of not one, but seven demons. And maybe the, you know, the detail about the seven demons is to you know, let us think that, well, maybe that means she was subject to multiple different varieties and flavors of anxiety and misery and isolation and self-hatred and physical you know, affliction and antisocial behavior. I mean, seven demons. Go to Luke 11. Verse 24 through 28. Jesus speaking here, and you know, there's been a, there's some false teachings here going on about demons. He's giving them some straight up information. And he says this, when an impure spirit, okay, when an impure spirit, verse 24, comes out from a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. And then it says, I will return to the house I left. And when it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. And then it goes and takes seven other spirits, more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. The teaching that Jesus is presenting here about demons, and I think it's a teaching that's applicable as well about sin, is that it, it's simply not enough to sweep your house clean. And we've just gone through the days of unleavened bread, and all of us have gone through an exercise just like this, where we've you know, swept our house of you know, all the potential leavening that could be in there. We've thrown away all the bread and all the baking powder and all that stuff. We've probably run a vacuum over the car. We've tried to get all this stuff out, right? So we've done this, we've swept our house clean, and this is a picture that we've gone through, that we have walked through once again. We remove leaven, and that, of course, is that we are picturing removing sin, okay? We sweep our houses clean. But that's not enough. It's not enough to remove leaven. Even in the days of the leavened bread, that's not enough, because in addition to removing the, lev the leaven, it says, Eat the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So you want to put out certain things and bring in certain things. It's not enough to sweep your house clean. We need to fill our house, fill that now clean and empty house with the good things that God is teaching us to do, which hopefully we will get around to focusing on soon in upcoming messages. And we do this every day in reality, not just during those seven days, but we want to carry this forward into the year that's ahead and not be a house that's just empty. We want to be a house that's full of good things, not just empty of the bad. So here's Mary. She had seven demons in her. Her life was a horror. A horror, I think it was like a horror movie where there's just these cringe moments where you're just, ah. that's what her life was like. And she had no means of escape. She had no way out. She was trapped. You don't have the power to overpower a demon. And then one day she came before Jesus and he looked upon her with pity, and he set her free. Just like that. She was free. And we've gone through this picture of freedom at the Passover, and it's something that I think we should hold near and dear to us because it really makes a good future possible for us. And we have a lot to be thankful for, like Mary.
So what about Mary made her the person that Jesus appeared to first? Why Mary? Why Mary Magdalene? Why would Jesus appear to this woman? And before all others, for that matter. Okay, now he, he appeared to her first, not Peter and not John, who were very close to him. Better yet, why didn't, why didn't he just um, gather everyone together and appear to everybody all at once? That way no one could claim the preeminence, you know? No one saw him first, we all saw him together, right? That would have been a, a way of doing it. Later on, Jesus would indeed appear to everybody all together. But first, just Mary, only Mary. And I think he might have done it this way to emphasize that he, the supreme over all creation, the one who, through whom, and by whom all things were created, the head honcho of all creation, the firstborn of all creation, is dealing with individuals, real people. And he's dealing with us one-on-one. -on -one. in a loving and a caring relationship. You're not just a statistic. You're not just one out of X number of thousand people. You're you. And God is dealing with you. Christ is dealing with you personally and directly. Let's talk about being an individual and the church. Individualism and the church. So God draws you to himself, and he does this through Christ. You know, Jesus said, the Father, no one can come to me except the Father draws him, right? But Jesus also says, I am the door, and no one can go to the Father except through me. So the Father draws you to himself through Christ. And he does this not in the form of a, some kind of mystical, transcendental, otherworldly experience, you know, where you're exploring your inner whatever. That's not how it works. God draws you to himself by bringing you into the body of his son, which is the church. This is how God rolls. And within this body, God wants us to learn stuff together in an environment of an assembly, a convocation. And we learn a lot of things through the church. One is, you know, we learn about relationships. We learn about what, it like, what it's like to butt heads with people and reconcile. We learn about what it means to submit, what it means to be in a position where you have to judge matters and then live with the person <laughs> for the next you know, 14 years. You can't just walk away. I'll never see them again, you know? Like someone you meet on the road, and you cut them off, and you say, oh, I don't care, I'll never see them again, right? Church is different. You're going to see that person over and over and over again. And sometimes we cut each other off, right? But we have to deal with it in a long-term relationship. God teaches us through the church. Each of you is a unique individual, like Mary. You got your backstory. You've got your things that you've come out of things that you've overcome, things that you're working on. Every one of you is unique. And you're learning to act or interact with other people who are just as unique as you are, who have their own backstory, their own issues. And we do this in a way that is overarched with a concept and a way of thinking about other people that is guided by righteousness and is guided by truth and love. And this is what God is all about. Jesus, at that prayer that he prayed, we went through at Passover, he said, oh, Father, let them be one, just as you and I are one. Let them learn this. I mean, that's what he prayed that final night. And that's, that's the reason God draws you into the body of his son. Go to Ephesians 4, verse 4 through 7. It says, There is one body, 
There's one spirit, just as you were called to one hope, one expectation, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. So God is dealing with you as an individual. His grace is poured out to you, as it says, uh, as Christ has apportioned it. The perfect fit for you. Go to Corinthians, I believe that's 1 Corinthians 12, and verse 24. And Paul does this a couple of times where he talks about the church as the body. And he talks about the different parts of the body and he makes note of some people are going to be the arm, some people will be the toe, the lip, the ear, the hair, and the body is all different parts working together. And he uses this analogy in a number of ways. And we're just diving into the middle of one of them here in 1 Corinthians 12. Where he says this in verse 24, he says, um, jump into the middle of the verse where it says, God has put the body together and he gives greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. And if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. You're brought into a body brought into the body of Christ, which is his church. But you are treated and you are appreciated as an individual. Your own backstory, your own issues, your own need for God's grace. And God created humanity with lots of diversity. I hope you've noticed that. There are a lot of different people on this planet. Even within God's church, there's a lot of different people. I remember when I first started attending the church, uh, one of the things that really you know, boom hit me was, wow, these people come from all different walks of life. And I was in a, a big city, it was a very multicultural city, and these people from all over the place. And to me that rang, that was the ring of truth. Yeah, wow, boy, this is a lot of different people. It's not like a church where you know everybody, they live in the same neighborhood, they're all the same. Now, God's church is bringing you into a body and there's a lot of diversity within God's church. And then you just magnify it across the whole planet. And then over time, there's a lot of diversity in God's creation and there's a lot of diversity within his church. God's purpose, what he's looking to accomplish is not to erase your individuality and move you into a mold where you're like everybody else. That is not what God is about. He could, why create all the diversity? His purpose is not to erase your individuality, but to take your individuality and focus it and point it in a positive direction. I experienced this with my children and it was a revelation to me when I realized they're going to be who they're going to be. My job as a dad was to take that and point it in a good direction. Not to, you know, like, you know, kill it, but to make it go in a good direction. That's what God's doing with us. And that positive direction, you know, in many ways you could describe it, but one really great way is life everlasting. Let's talk about Mary's perseverance. This would be a matter of character. This is a little bit more uh, supposing. But Mary's perseverance. So Mary was a follower of Jesus. We read about that. She was a follower with these other women. And she had money. And she traveled with Jesus and the disciples. And then, you know, when you read through the ministry of Jesus, you must recognize that as time moves on and as the ministry moves on, hostility builds. And people start turning against him. Not just the Jewish leaders, but everybody turns against him. Because he says hard stuff. He says things that people are like, wow, you know, I really like the free bread, but boy, the other stuff, ooh. So things kind of got hostile toward the end. And Mary stuck with it. 
She was a disciple. She was a follower. She wasn't just there for the good times. She wasn't just cruising by and listening, oh, you know, Jesus makes me feel so good when I sit and I listen to him. I like that. I'm sure that was part of it. But when times got tough, she didn't bolt. She stuck with it. Go to John 19. So much did she stick with it that she was there to the bitter end. She was present at the execution of Jesus. Go to John 19, verse 25. Near the cross, near the staros, the stake, whichever you prefer, of Jesus, stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. So at first, she was standing right there, close enough to hear Jesus on the cross, dying, speak. And he wouldn't have been able to yell or speak loudly, so she was pretty close, real close. And then the jostling crowds were moving in and they kind of elbowed back Mary and, and the other disciples because they're moving in to get a better look at the spectacle. I mean, they didn't have TV back then. This was a big, this was entertainment. They wanted to see, whoa, this is, whoa. They wanted to see it. And the faithful followers were kind of pushed back to the back of the crowd. Go to Matthew 27. Because then later on we read, yeah, there's, they've moved. So Matthew 27, verse 55 through 56. It says, many women were there watching from a distance. And they had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. And among them were Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James and Josephus, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. So there's Mary Magdalene. She's kind of, you know, the, the crowds moved in. You know, you've, you've probably read through a description of the crucifixion before, and it gets nasty. And people hurl insults at them, and they're yelling, and, ah! and the disciples have moved to the back. The women have moved to the back of the crowd, and there they are, and they're looking at him from a distance. Now, the men appear to have departed. I don't know, I could be reading too much into that, but the, the men appear to have left the scene. And the women are, they're hanging around. They're sticking there. They're staying to the bitter and it was bitter, the bitter end. Now we're in Matthew. Read verses 57 through 61 where it says this. So as evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea called Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. And Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of a rock. Then he rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb, and he went away. And Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. So everybody else is gone, and these two women, one of whom is Mary Magdalene, appear to have followed the burial party as they take the body that's down off the cross, prepare it quickly, and then put it in a tomb. And they saw, you know, this is a hasty procedure. And then they decided that they would come back and do it right. And they went out and they got the supplies. And they would come back and they would properly clean and prepare the body. So there's Mary. Even after he's dead, he's taken off the cross. She's, she follows them down to the tomb. She's watching. Mary was also among the first to get up after the three days and three nights. She got up and she was the, one of the first to get up early and rise up and go to the tomb. Go to John 20. John 20, verses 1 through 10. Early on the first day of the week, that would be the, the uh, day of the wave sheaf offering. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. And so she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they've taken the Lord 
out of the tomb and we don't know where they put him. So Peter and the other disciples started from the tomb, for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. And he saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separated from the linen. And finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside and he saw and he believed. Now, this is a kind of sidebar here. It says, they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. And then the disciples went back to where they were staying. And what comes next is Mary has a personal encounter with the risen Christ. Let's read uh, the next verse here. It says, now Mary stood outside the tomb. So she was there. She'd gone with them. She's kind of standing back. Mary stood outside the tomb crying, and she wept. She bent over to look into the tomb. So John and Peter, they, they went back home, and Mary stays there crying. And the word there, crying or, or weeping, is kleio. It's a Greek word, kleio. And so it doesn't mean that she was, you know, dabbing her eyes with a tissue. No, it's sobbing. The word means she was sobbing, you know. <gasps> You know, if you've ever seen someone really crying, that's what this is saying. She was, you know, heaving, crying her eyes out, which is a different word in Greek from just silently crying or, or weeping. She was sobbing loudly, taking in big gulps of air, wailing, because Jesus was gone. And she'd never see him again. And now, even his body had been taken away. Could it really be over? It was, it was good, and now it's over. And she's not thinking theologically. She's not rifling the memory banks for all the Old Testament scriptures. She's not thinking about prophecy. She just knows that he's gone. And she's alone again. Read verse 12 and 13. So then she saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. So I think the, angel, the angels are interesting here. Um, the angels know the plan. They know what's going on. They know the spiritual reality of what's just happened that Jesus has risen from the dead. And I think it's with genuine wonder that they asked her, why are you crying? This is great. He's risen from the dead. Why are you crying? But she doesn't know this, right? I think it's, you know, it is a genuine question. Why, why, why would you cry at a moment like this? This is great. This is good stuff. But Mary does not know that he's resurrected. And she's just there looking for closure, you know, like at a funeral, uh, to take care of him and to serve him one last time and to prepare his body properly and show him the honor and respect that he was due, you know, redo the hasty last minute job that uh, Joseph and Nicodemus had done, just you know, trying to get his body ready so they could get it stashed in the tomb before the holy day began. And then in verse 14, it says, at this she turned around, she saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize it was Jesus. So, you know, she, she doesn't see it. Why? Why does she not realize it's him? Now, if we read the other instances when Jesus appeared to the, the brethren after, you know, after the resurrection, they, too, didn't recognize him. We won't go through them, but the examples I have listed here would be Mark 16, verse 12, and Luke 24, verse 13 through 16, Matthew 29, verse 17, and John 24, verse 15. All gospel records where people didn't recognize him when he appeared to them. You'll see what I mean if you go and read them. 
It was only when Jesus revealed himself to them that they recognized that it was him. And so it was with Mary. So verse 15, he asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Now Jesus' first words to her are a little distant, referring to her as woman was kind of like, you know, me saying, ma'am. You know, it is kind of a formal greeting, you know, woman. And uh, he repeats the angel's questions, why are you crying? And he knows this is great, this is a good thing, right? And she's probably still sobbing while this is going on. And she begs him for help in, uh, in finding the body that's supposed to be there. It says, thinking that he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. And then verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary, he said her name, Mary. And then she turned towards him and cried out, Rabboni. She recognized him. She said, teacher, it's you. She knew it was him. He says her name, Mary. And when she hears his voice, she's like that sheep that hears the voice of the shepherd and knows it's him. And she recognizes who it is and she cries out. She's happy. I don't know what she's feeling at this point, really. But here he is, the one who she owes so much to. Before he did uh, what he did for her, before he released her from the seven demons, she was miserable. She was happy, and he's died. She didn't know what to do, and here he is. Jesus Christ knows your name as well. He knows the name of every person in this room. He knows your name. In fact, he knows more. <laughs> he knows more than just your name. He knows everything about you, every hair on your head. He knows every victory that you have accomplished. And he knows every defeat and every failure you've been through as well. And he knows how to call out to you in a way that you can recognize that it's him and that you can be sure. I'm not gonna try and explain all the ins and outs of how that works. But when he calls to you, you know it's him. And he knows you. And there's a connection there. Let's talk about Jesus' physical presence. So verse 17 says, Jesus said, he's talking to Mary, he says, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. Mary's found him again. And now she, she, she doesn't want to let him go. You know, don't, don't leave. She wants to hang on to his physical presence, which is really what she's accustomed to. This is all she's known, him there in the flesh, and she wants to hold on to that. But it cannot be. Jesus had to ascend to the Father to take on the glory of the firstborn from the dead. And there's more work to be done. And Jesus is even now at work as the risen Christ. Not the dead Jesus. The risen Christ, the firstborn of many brothers in the family of God. And Jesus is the wave sheaf offering. I think this is what he's getting at here, to be presented before the Father on that first day of the week that happens in the Days of Unleavened Bread, after the first Sabbath. Jesus is the wave sheaf offering presented to God on the day after the weekly Sabbath that occurs during the Festival of Unleavened Bread. And he's telling Mary, look, moving forward, their relationship would be more than a mere restoration of what had been. We're not just going back. It was going to change. I'm not staying here in the flesh. So don't hold on to that. 
you'll benefit more, and Jesus said this in his, his prayer in the garden before he died, the people of God will benefit more when he is risen, when he is glorified, and when he has presented himself, and then he can be present with you in a different and a better way. Moving forward, Christ's physical presence on earth is his body, which is the church. And in that way, he is present in a way that is better. It's hard sometimes to not want him to be there in, in the flesh and think, oh, I wish that I was able to see him and talk to him like Mary could or Peter or John, but this is better. It's God's plan. He's present here on earth through his church. His spirit is within you through the baptism and the laying on of hands, which is administered through the body. And together, the body and the spirit will work together to transform you. That was the plan that Mary would submit to and go through, and that is the plan for you and me. And in verse 17, Jesus tells Mary, go and tell my brothers. And before he'd spoken of, um, he'd spoken of servants and masters, and then he called them friends, right? Now he calls them brothers. And he also says, I'm going to my father and your father, to my God and your God. And through Christ's life, his death and his resurrection, the relationship levels up. If you like gaming, you'll get that. You'll level up. And the door is now opened so that you may be like him. That is the promise. That means a lot. I mean, that's another whole message. That means you'll be living on the same plane of existence. Now, Christ always retains the preeminence. He is the firstborn. He doesn't ever step down. He is the head. He is the firstborn. But as it says, he is the firstborn of many brothers and sisters who are brought into the family of God. So the relationship changes, and it was important. Mary, you couldn't hang on to the way it was, because if you did, we could never go where God wants us to go. So in conclusion, Mary, who was she? We don't know a lot, do we? We don't really know very much about her, but what we do know about her is that she owed him a lot. Everything, really. He saved her from torment. He saved her from, from death. And now he'd opened up the door to life everlasting. And she saw him raised from the dead. And she will see him again. And as it was with Barry, so it will be with you.